Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. There's, there's forgiveness and redemption in, in the blood of Christ, and I'm so thankful for the promise of the gospel that, that the enmity, the, the war with, with God that was raging in our sinful hearts, that through faith in Christ, it's, it's, it's done. It's put to death, and we're, 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 we're made alive. That's, that's good news. It's finished. And, and because it's finished... And because those who have true faith in Christ will finish the race, they will truly endure, God has given to believers pastors. He's given them pastors to help them finish in the work that has been finished. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to dive into Paul's farewell in Acts chapter 20 to the Ephesian elders. And I was hopeful that we would make it all the way to the end, but it's just not going to happen um, so we're going to go Acts 20, verses 13 through 31, the first half of a message, uh, part one. I want to share with you six principles for faithfulness in elders that we find in this text. And when we come to this passage, Paul is on the move, right? He's trying to get back to Jerusalem because back, we saw back in chapter 19, verse 21, that he is resolved in the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, to go to Jerusalem and then on to Rome. And in verses 1 through 12, which we covered a couple weeks ago, we saw that Paul is encouraging the, cha- the churches that he has planted on his return voyage, his j- return journey back to Jerusalem. And then, then we read these words in verses 13 through 16 of chapter 20. All right, chapter 20 of Acts. 13 through 16. This is really just just to set some context, all right? Hear with me the word of the Lord. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Azos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Azos, we took him on board and went to Micheline. And sailing from there, we came to the following day opposite Chios, The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Would you pray with me? God, help us as we navigate this text today to to be edified in the hearing of your word, to be strengthened God, to be challenged, to be refreshed. God, whatever the need of your body is today, I pray that you would meet it in the hearing of your word and that, God, my, the meditation of my heart and the, the words that emerge from my lips would be pleasing in your sight. God, I want to worship you today. In Jesus' name, amen. So in these verses, verses 13 through 16, we have what's called a, a travel log in Luke. And in this travel log, Paul is still making the most of his opportunities to encourage believers, right? He's like, y'all get on the boat, but I'm going to go by land as long as I can. Why? Presumably so he can keep encouraging believers. And eventually he's, he's got to meet them at Azos and he's got to hop on the boat as well. And, and 
he has decided to sail past Ephesus, which is this city where he invested three years of his life. I mean, he's got this opportunity to go there, but he had decided, verse 16, meaning it wasn't a hasty or lightly considered decision. He had made the decision to sail on past Ephesus so he could get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. He doesn't, Luke doesn't tell us why that, Luke, that Paul wants to do this, but it's presumably because of what Pentecost represented in the life of the church, right? It's the, it's the beginning uh, in a sense, of, of the church. The Jews are converted. Some Jews in Jerusalem are converted. The Spirit falls upon them. And then the gospel goes out from Jerusalem to Gentiles who now recognize that their brothers and sisters in Christ have great need. And they are, Paul is bringing in a financial harvest back to Jerusalem in a sense to say, look at what God has done. He started in you the family has grown, and now they're bringing back in. This is a Pentecost was associated with the Feast of Weeks, the celebration of harvest. Look at this harvest of financial benefit and blessing to you that's come from the Gentiles. So Paul really wants to get to Jerusalem, and he doesn't have much time because he was in Philippi at Passover, and he's got about seven weeks, Pentecost about seven weeks after Passover, to make it there. So he can't stop at Ephesus. But Ephesus was a city where he had poured his life out. It was the, the climax of his investment of the gospel in people. And Miletus is, is a prosperous coastal town that's only about 30 miles from Ephesus. And Paul's not going to go there. He, he cares for the Ephesian church and he's relatively close, but he's got to maintain his schedule. So what does he do? Let's look at verse 17 through 27. Hear with me again the word of the Lord. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they, had, when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul loves the church at Ephesus. He loves the believers in the region of Asia. And he loves these elders, these brothers, these men that he poured his life into in training and equipping them to shepherd God's flock. And in the first part of his speech... He presents himself to them as an example. 
And for elders to remain faithful in their work, they've got to be reminded of, they must learn from Paul's example. And not only must they learn from Paul's example, they must learn from the example of other godly elders. We see this in 2 Timothy 2.2. Paul tells Timothy, entrust these things to faithful men who will be able to do what? To entrust them to others also. So if we're going to be faithful and you say, well, I'm not, God didn't call me to be a pastor. That's all right. You can help your pastors in this. You can look for this in others. For, for pastors to be faithful, we've got to learn from godly examples of, of other pastors and people like Paul. Of all of Paul's speeches and acts, this is the only one where we get the content of a speech that he gives to believers. Now, we know that he makes speeches to believers, right? We've, we've seen him in the upper room, and Eutychus fell out the window. We just don't know what Paul said exactly, but we have the content of what Paul says to believers right here, and the believers that he's addressing are what? They are pastors, elders, overseers. In verse 28, these elders are called overseers who care for or literally pastor the flock, so the New Testament reveals to us the, the unwavering pattern of the New Testament for local church leadership is that elders, the, that is spiritually mature men, who are also called overseers, will lead or guide and protect the flock of God who entrusts the flock to them. Peterson summarizes it this way. Churches are led by a team of elder overseers who share the responsibility of pastoral leadership. And in this emotional farewell, Paul reminds these elders of their vital gospel work as those entrusted with the leadership and the protection of the church. After Paul summons the elders in verse 17 and verses 18 through 21, do you see it? He commends himself to them as an example to emulate. We have God's word, but we also are given godly examples. And Paul says to them in verse 18, you yourselves know how I lived. And what's interesting is the you yourselves know is is in the present continuative sense. You say, what does that mean? You know it and you knew it and you are now knowing it. You know how I lived among you. You know I was there. You knew my humility and my tears and my trials. Why in the world would Paul say this to them? I mean, it's kind of a weird way to start, is it not? You know me. Of course they knew. But the reason he has to say this is because it's likely some were questioning Paul's leadership and his love. I mean, Paul, you're just 30 miles away from Ephesus. Why didn't you just come to Ephesus? Perhaps some are thinking, you spent three years with us, but now you can't travel another 30 miles? There he goes, Paul. He's just putting his schedule before us. You say, they would never think that of Paul. Really? Have you read Paul's letters? I mean, in an instant, the people of God were defaulting towards skepticism against Paul. And unfortunately, our fleshly tendency with with leadership of all kinds is to default towards skepticism and selfishness rather than support and selflessness, especially when our leaders do something, anything that we just don't quite, doesn't quite compute for us right away. So in, in, in church, let's face it, we live in a skeptical world. I mean, when's the last time... You went on Facebook and saw somebody like praising a leader for something. I mean, it's always skepticism. It's always tearing down. That's the culture and the environment we live in. So Paul reminds the elders 
I was with you. For three years, I poured my life into you. And he tells them not just that he was there, but how he was there. He was there for the whole time, verse 18. What was he doing? Verse 19, serving the Lord. His way of life was service to Jesus. And while they may not like it that he's not going to Jerusalem, they cannot deny his love for them or the Lord Jesus, at least not with any integrity. In verse 19, Paul says he served with all humility. What does that mean? You say, that doesn't sound very humble of Paul. Complete humility. He knows his heart. He's like, I don't know how else to say this. I mean, my dad had a Garfield mug growing up that said, it's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. That's, that's not what Paul's saying here. I mean, it's, it's awkward to, to talk about your own humility, right? But Paul doesn't have much time, and he just throws them back to his example. And he's like, if you don't, if you don't see humility in that, I don't know what else to do. I, I was giving my life for you. I served you in complete humility. What does that mean? It's hard to be seen as humble sometimes when you're the center of attention and the center of the show. Paul is the center of attention for three years, but his heart was not to exalt himself. His heart was to exalt the Savior and to bring people to exalt the one who's worthy of exaltation, which isn't Paul, and it isn't your pastor. It's King Jesus. He was there with complete humility, and that meant that there were some tears along the way. Why? Because he was often misunderstood or misrepresented by the churches that he so desperately loved. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says this, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. It is not easy to love and to not receive love. Paul has anguish in his heart because he's been misrepresented and and not perceived rightly by those that he genuinely loves. And he weeps. Paul also weeps over the condition and the destiny of lost people, does he not? In Romans chapter 9, 1 and 2, he's commenting on unbelieving Jews and he says this, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. So Paul, we see, in Paul we see humility and we see tears. And then finally I want to suggest that we see grit. We see in Paul's example humility and tears and grit. And the grit, honestly, is, is not Paul's grit, right? It's Holy Spirit-given grit. He endures through trials that happened, verse 19. And in this case, the trials that are, are referenced are the plotting of the Jews, but, but Paul endured plotting by Jews in some places and Gentiles in some places. But I think Luke focuses on the trials of the Jews because what's going to happen to Paul? He's trying to get to Jerusalem, and who's, who's going to put him on trial? The Jews. Can, can you think of someone else who, when he set his face like a flint to get to Jerusalem, endured trials by Jews? Do you not see the example of Christ being reflected all over again in Acts? And Paul's going to be humiliated. He's going to be shamed. He's going to be persecuted. And in that, the gospel is going to get to Rome and it's going to get to the nations all over again through the suffering of God's servant. Jesus is going to be magnified, the one who suffered the ultimate price so that we could be his. That's good news. 
Paul reminds the elders of his humility, his tears, and his endurance through trials. Why? Why does he remind the elders of this? Is he puffing himself up? No. He reminds them of this because he knows they're going to face similar challenges. They've got to learn to live like Paul. To endure, they would need to humbly keep the focus on loving obedience to King Jesus no matter the cost. They too would weep for the lost over wayward church members while being attacked. And they would endure trials God himself would see them through. And it would be this way. Why is it this way, by the way? Because the church of God is not a cruise ship navigating peaceful waters but a battleship engaged in God's mission through the breaking waves of a broken world where the forces of darkness are dead set against your success in reaching and building up broken people for the glory of King Jesus. The aim of pastors, what what do pastors live for? What do they long for? The aim of pastors is every member's maturation in Christ. It is every member's endurance in Christ. It is that they would finish in the one who has finished the work. And to do this, pastors must be radically committed to faithfulness to God's word. All right, this is, if you're you're having trouble paying attention this morning, because I would be if I were in your seat. We, We just made it about halfway through point one, okay? Paul commends himself as an example to learn from. And then we get down to verses 20 to 27. And what does Paul focus on? He focuses on the word of God. So here's my example. It was with humility. It was with tears. It was through trials. But don't forget the reason for the tears, the reason for the trials, the reason for humility is because it was all about getting you into and sustaining you with, not me, not Paul, but with the Word of God, regardless of the resistance or the attacks or the challenges that might come. We know this is what Paul is thinking because of what we see in 20 through 27. In verse 20 and in verse 27, do you see it? Paul says, he did not shrink from declaring either anything that was profitable or the whole counsel of God. Why does Paul say he did not shrink at the beginning and the end of this section of his example? Because he was very often tempted to shrink back. Why is that? Because church proclaiming and applying the word of God often requires that pastors challenge our fleshly will. Preaching the Word of God exposes faulty attitudes and assumptions that we did not even realize that we had. To declare the Word and apply the Word takes spirit-given resolve because it doesn't always make people happy. Paul says he did not shrink from declaring God's truth, and not just some of his truth, but anything that was profitable, verse 20. To shrink is to cower or conceal in fear. Paul was bold with the word regardless of the cost, the pain, or the results. And pastors must do the same to this very very day. Why? Because where else would we go? What else would we teach? What else could we commend? Did you know our statement of faith says that every religious opinion is to be tried by the scriptures? 
every religious opinion. There is no opinion that you have that ought not be distilled by, sorted through, filtered through the word of God. Your pastors, on the authority of God's word, are to sort out, process, consider, deliberate, think through, pray through everything we do for the glory of God. That is their responsibility given by God. Note the ways Paul describes what he did. He was declaring anything that was profitable, teaching in public and from house to house, verse 20, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks, 20, verse 21. Let's pause there for a second. In just those two verses, 20 and 21, we see that Paul, Paul saying that he covered all topics in all sorts of places to proclaim the truth before all kinds of people. No shaving or skipping the truth depending on his location or his hearers. He was all in on all the truth with all people all the time. That's a pastor. Let's continue. Paul wants to finish his course of ministry, verse 24, one given to him by Jesus himself. He didn't claim the ministry for his own. Christ claimed him for the ministry. It's a ministry to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Did you know that the gospel is the message of the grace of God? It's not the message of, of uh, admit, believe, confess. It's not the message of what you can do. It is the message of what God has done in Christ. It is the message, the story of what God has done to renew his world and to qualify us to have a place in it through his son. In verse 25, we learn that he was proclaiming the kingdom. In verse 27, Paul concludes the first part of his speech by saying, I, I didn't shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. So in verse 21, don't miss it, Paul testifies of the need for conversion to Jesus to all peoples. In verse 25, he preached to the church, heralding forth their need to live as citizens of God's kingdom, telling them it matters how we live if we say we've been bought by the blood of Christ. And in verse 27, he didn't hold anything back. He gave them the whole counsel of God, which is the whole plan of God for humanity and the created order revealed in the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation and fulfilled in Christ. Paul taught it all and applied it all and gave his all to Christ's call. And he's urging these men, these elders, to do the same. Beloved, God's call to serve as an elder and he might raise some of you men up to this task. God's call to serve as an elder is a call to devote your life to the word for the good of the church. It doesn't mean that every pastor is on the payroll. That is not what the Bible says. Some who are especially given to the load of teaching, Paul commends compensation. But most of these men and perhaps none of these men are on the church payroll. What does it mean then? It means that every pastor owns personally and deeply the seriousness of the work. Paul knows that he's headed toward imprisonment and inflictions if he follows the Spirit to Jerusalem. So why in the world does he continue? The Holy Spirit says you're going to be imprisoned and afflicted, so why don't you just bow out? Verse 24, do you see it? I don't count my life of any value nor as precious to myself. 
That's the attitude of a pastor. I I don't count my life as precious to myself. What is more precious to Paul? Completing his assignment. And in so doing, he's like the faithful watchman of Ezekiel 33, 6. He's innocent of the blood of all, verse 26. The implication is clear. Elders are watchmen over the flock. Their accountability is to the Lord to declare and apply the word of God entrusted to all who are entrusted to their care. Why? For the glory of God and the good of the flock. And in in doing this, they will be found innocent before the Lord who judges teachers with a stricter judgment. Why is it that we ask you to join North Roanoke Baptist Church or a local church where there will be pastors accountable to God for your care? Because it's what you need. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So whether it's North Roanoke or another faithful gospel-preaching church, go there, plant your life there, be present there in season and out of season, when it's raining, when it's snowing, when it's sunny outside, be present. Let your pastors know, I love you, I support you, I want to embrace you and help me finish the race. Elders must learn from Paul's example. They must live in humility and tenderness and endure trials because of their faithfulness to lead the church to do God's will and fulfill a calling that is more precious and needful for them to finish than it is for them to even live. Elders must follow, God, follow Paul's example. What else must they do? Let's keep reading in 28 through 31. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years... I did not cease night or day. To admonish everyone with tears. First, elders have to learn from Paul's example and from godly examples. Second, do you see it in verse 28? Just the first few few words of verse 28. They have to look out for one another. Pastors must look out for one another. Leading from the truth for the glory of Christ and the good of the church puts pastors directly at odds with the world system, with the flesh and the forces of of darkness constantly. So how does Paul begin verse 28? Pay careful attention to yourselves. Don't compromise yourself as you contend for the truth. Keep loving, keep serving Jesus supremely, keep your eyes on Jesus, stay sharp in the word, study to show yourself approved, endure hardship like a good soldier, manage your household well, train up your children in the way they should go. Do not neglect these things. God's ideal for pastors is for them to function within the solidarity and accountability of a mutually watchful, word-driven elder team who loves one another fiercely and is all in on leading the church and themselves together. 
This is God's word. This is God's design for his church. The Lord entrusts local churches to a team of men, elders, who are, 1 Timothy 3, 2, apt to teach. You say, what's the difference between a pastor and every other Christian? I mean, because I'm just like you. I tie my shoes the way you tie your shoes. Well, hopefully. I put my pants on one leg at a time. I'm no better than you. No pastor is any better than you. They're just gifted differently than you. God has gifted us with this apt to teachness, which distinguishes pastors from deacons and really from, from all other believers. You say, what in the world does apt to teach mean? It doesn't just mean they stand up with a Sunday school lesson and can teach through a guided curriculum. Apt to teach speaks to someone's way of thinking. It, it speaks to someone's way of life. And this is, church, this is very important for you to get about pastors, okay? Pastors can't help it. They can't turn off the Bible. And it's not their fault. It's what the Spirit does in the equipping and the gifting of a pastor, and it's a blessing and it's a curse. Like you start telling me about something, you're like, man, I just, I just wanted to know about your opinion on Cracker Barrel biscuits, and I, I, and I started thinking about the bread of life. <laughs> like, what is, what is wrong with you? I'm sorry. Pastors are apt to teach. The Bible is the warp and the woof of their life. One writer summarizes what it means to be apt to teach this way. They must be teachative. The intersection of the Bible and church is always on their mind. The intersection of the Bible and life is their love language. It is the frame through which they see virtually everything. They instinctively think Bible and gospel about all of life. Pastors eat and breathe and sleep and crave the word and its application such that the body will be faithful and Christ the head will be exalted. And this is taxing work. It is nonstop emotional taxing work. When someone has a crisis in their marriage, the Bible goes into hyperdrive and you're driving to their home and you're begging them not to separate or to divorce, but to look to Christ and the gospel who endured much. You can't just disentangle that from your life. You feel it in your bones. Paul commands this elder team in verse 28, and it's a community of elders. Pay careful attention continuously to yourselves. Watch out for one another. For you to care for the church as God intends, you first have to care for one another. Lifting one another up, sharpening one another, extinguishing the fiery darts of the evil one. Ephesians 6, 16 together. Elders watch out for one another because the work that they do directly pertains to eternity. Did you know that? That what elders do is an eternal work. It, it pertains to their own eternity and to the eternity of the flock. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 16, Persist in this watchfulness because by so doing you will save yourself and your hearers. I am here this morning for your salvation. 
I am here this morning for your endurance. I am here this morning for your good. I pay attention to my family and what they learn and what comes into our home because I want to be qualified. I want to endure and I want to be able to continue to help you endure. You say, well, hold on a second. I thought God saved me. What, do you, what in the world do you, what are you saying? You have anything to do with my salvation? Of course God saved you. But God also gave you pastors. Those who are truly saved will truly endure. And one of the primary means by which you will endure is being under and accountable to and supportive of godly pastors who are holding themselves accountable so that they can help you endure. Does that make sense? I'm not here because I'm great. That's surely not the case. I'm here because God chose me. And for whatever reason, He chose you too, and we're here together, and we're going to endure. So we've got to watch out for one another. We've got to look to Paul's example. And finally, verses 28 through 31, we, look, we see that we must look out for and shepherd the blood-bought flock of God. If you're a pastor, you've got to look out for and shepherd the blood-bought flock of God. In verse 28, we learn as one pastor recently summarized it, the Lord has not left His church without leaders. He has left them with leaders to direct them, guide them, guard them, and protect them. The Lord Jesus Christ, the great head of the church, has delegated authority to lead local churches to elders who are called overseers, men who shepherd the local church God entrusts to their care. This is not an opinion. It is the clear witness of God's word in Acts 14.23, in Acts 20.28, and in all the pastoral epistles. Whose job is it to make sure we are committed to, informed by, and informed by, and driven by the gospel, and not some other message, elders? How do we remain committed to the apostles' doctrine? Elders, God's answer is elders who are commanded to pay attention to the flock. What is the flock? It's the local church of God. Elders do this work, why? Not because they made themselves leaders, but because the Holy Spirit appointed them to this task, verse 28. He appointed them as overseers for the flock in which, do you see that word, in which or among whom? They lived and served. In other words, God appoints elders in every flock. He doesn't appoint elders to sit in a regional office and make decisions on behalf of a flock that they're not a part of. He appoints a team of elders to be in one flock, shepherding that flock together. That's all in verse 28. To oversee, what does it mean to be an overseer? It means to scope out. The word literally means... The verb literally means, this is a noun, but the verb literally means to scope out every detail, to examine everything. Elders do more, and I think this is, this is a problem in our culture today. People think of the pastor as the guy that goes to the hospital and he makes noise in the pulpit, hopefully for no more than 30 minutes on Sunday. As if there's nothing else to the work. The, the policy setting and the processes and the procedures, ah, that's somebody else. We'll just throw that down to a committee. No, that is under the oversight of overseers because it all connects back to the religious opinions that we have that have to be driven by the Word of God. It all connects. 
And the pastors are commanded in God's word to scope out every detail. So elders do more than make noise for 30 minutes or make sounds for 30 minutes in a sermon. The Spirit selects them to lead the church to live soundly in every respect. Paul is telling the elders, don't neglect or be ashamed to fulfill your Spirit-given assignment. He chose you. You didn't choose you. The Spirit chose you, so do the work. And to be sure, Paul appointed them. Why did Paul appoint them? Because of their character and gifting. And who gave them their gifts? The Holy Spirit gave them their gifts. And the Holy Spirit gave Paul and church the ability to recognize those gifts. Just as the Spirit gifts every Christian for a role in the body, He gifts elders to care for the church of God. God the Spirit chose these men to care for the church belonging to God the Father. That word care for is the word that, from which we get the word pastor. The word is literally to shepherd or to pastor, and it's used as a verb. Well, what does it mean to shepherd the church? It means far more that you go and visit senior adults when they're ailing in the nursing home. In fact, that's not the primary meaning at all. The word shepherd includes all the activities of a shepherd in shepherding a flock. He tends them, directs them, rules them, guides them, warns them, protects them, feeds them. Elders are shepherds. They are spirit-appointed men who oversee the church by shepherding, leading the whole flock to pursue and behold Christ, the good, great, and chief shepherd. But why? Why in the world did God design it this way? There's a part of me that doesn't know, but the reasons that are given in this text, look at verse 29. He knows that they're going to need protection. He he knows that churches that belong to to the Father are going to have to have in person, on the ground, in the flock, protection. After Paul leaves... They're going to head into a battle of eternal consequence, a battle that continues to this day, a battle for hearts and minds, a battle in which people want to strip the gospel of its power and turn the church into a lifeless club with a dash of Bible here and there and a whole bunch of bad doctrine thrown in. That's what Paul is warning about. You see it in verse 29, fierce wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. Fierce means cruel or savage or weighty or burdensome. Rather than follow the elders, they will want to come in and throw their weight around. False teachers would, as Peterson writes, pursue their own ends and not care about what happened to God's people. You say, well, I will recognize a wolf when they come in. What did Jesus tell us about these wolves in Matthew 7, 15? Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And notice where they're going to come. They'll come in among you. Why does the Spirit of God put elders in every flock and not just give us a bunch of personal devotions or online Bible studies because wolves target the flock by trying to come into the flock and He puts pastors in the flock to protect you where you are? are. In verse 30, Paul's warning becomes even more unnerving. Even from among the elders themselves, some will arise and speak twisted things to draw away the disciples after themselves, verse 30. 
These will be men who disqualify themselves not only as elders, but prove they're not even Christians. They seem to have the new resurrection life in Christ, but eventually their flesh would arise. Do you see the word arise in verse 30? It's the same word for resurrection. It's like the old man comes back. It's like the the old man never really died. And what would they do? They would try to gain a following for themselves rather than for Christ. And they would speak twisted things to draw men away to themselves. They would distort or corrupt or detract from the truth to get followers. Did you know two hallmarks of a wolf are one, corrupting or dismissing sound doctrine, and two, trying to get a crowd to follow them rather than to follow Christ. Elders, therefore, must watch out for one another's doctrine and disposition and work ethic even as they are watching out for the flock of God. And as I close, I want to show us one more reason for why God gives us elders. First, for our protection. We must constantly pay attention. We must be alert. And in verse 31, he captures this urgency, right, with which he speaks to the elders, saying, constantly be alert. Paul is again the example for three years. He, he wept over those urging them sincerely and tenderly and, and fiercely to endure through attack. And why is this? Why did Paul do this? Why was it so important for the church to be protected and for elders to lead in providing that protection? Are you with me? I know, I know it's a long sermon, and we're, but we're almost there. Why? Why elders to protect the church? Go back to verse 28. I want to give you a moment. Just just read verse 28 in your Bibles. Does verse 28 not blow you away? Why? Does God give elders to his church for, their, for her protection? Because the church is God's possession. Do you see that? He appointed you, the Holy Spirit appointed you as elders in the church of God, in the flock of God. Why is the church important to be protected? Because it is owned by God. It's not a sports booster club or a civic league. Church, we don't belong to Roanoke County. We don't belong to Roanoke City. We don't belong to the Commonwealth of Virginia. We don't belong to the United States of America. We belong to the sovereign king and ruler of the universe. And we are navigating a world that is dead set against our endurance and our success. And God puts elders in there to protect us and remind us of our identity and our fidelity to our king. Because we belong to God. We belong to God. God bought you with the blood of His Son. We belong to God and what we do matters now and for eternity. How is it that we belong to God? Is this not incredible? Is this not the gospel? Did Jesus not put elders in the church fundamentally because of the gospel? Do you see what it says? He bought the church. How? He obtained it with the blood of His own. Now, some of your translations say with His own blood which works, but it's more likely with the blood of his own, which means the Trinity is in verse 28. The Holy Spirit appoints elders. 
The church belongs to God the Father. How? He did not spare the blood of his own son. He gave him up for our salvation. Beloved wolves do not want us to be magnifying and obeying and loving Jesus, the one who shed his blood to bring us to God and make us God's own. And as we close, I'm going to invite our worship team to come up at this time. I want to ask you to consider for a moment what God has done to rescue and redeem and reconcile and restore us. He sent His Son. God sent His Son. No one else's bloody death would do because no one else could be found who was not worthy of death. No one else could make life itself be sw- excuse me, life itself come out of death by swallowing it whole and then remake us in the power of His resurrection. So how will the world know that we belong to God? How will the world know that we belong to God? Is it not that we are a people, a family who love His Son, adore His Son, follow His Son, and treasure His Son? And how will the world know that you treasure God's Son if you do not treasure His church? How will the world know you treasure His Son if you do not treasure His church? Can we really treasure Jesus and disregard or dismiss the very thing that He came to rescue? Is there anything of greater value in the world than the blood-bought church of God? Ask yourself that question. Is there anything more valuable in the world than the blood-bought church of God? What's the answer? No. There's nothing more precious Do your children see this? Does your family know this? Why does God give elders to churches to protect them? Because the church is the precious and prized possession of God, purchased at the cost of His Son's bloody death, so that we might be raised to follow Him in a church until He comes. There's nothing in life more precious or vital than that. Would you pray with me? God, stir within us deep affections for Jesus. Convict us however we need to be convicted. Encourage us however we need to be encouraged. And I pray, God, raise up elders from this flock to protect and lead and guard and guide and to do so well because Jesus is worthy of nothing less and the endurance of every saint is so important. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Before you stand and before we sing, I want to ask, do you think of church in this way? Do you think of the local church as the most precious thing in all the world? Do you pray for your pastors in this way, like eternity hangs in the balance? And that God has given them to you for your endurance. And if you don't, would you start, please? Would you hold your pastors up in prayer? And if you don't know Jesus, who died to save the church, why not today? Why not today?
Why not turn from your sin and trust in Christ and join the greatest, most important, and only enduring movement that the world will ever know? A movement of people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation whose only hope and greatest delight is that Jesus bled and died to bring us to God. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.